All right. You guys ready to get back into Daniel? Amen. Daniel chapter 3, if you'll open your Bibles there, and uh, we'll get right to work. There's a lot of ground to cover. Um, We left off with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being called before King Nebuchadnezzar because they refused to bow and worship the image that he had erected. If you were with us in Daniel chapter 2, we saw there that, excuse me, God had given King Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And, And in this dream... Nebuchadnezzar uh, saw an image, a great image, and it had a golden head, a chest, and arms that were of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. And in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw this image, and then he saw a stone that was cut without human hands strike the image, strike the feet of the image. And it broke them into pieces, crushed them into powder, and then scattered uh, that uh, powder uh, to uh, the, the, the winds like chaff. And um, Daniel was called to interpret the dreams. Really unsettled King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he knew it was significant, just didn't know what it was all about. Called all of his wise men, all of his astrologers. Nobody could interpret the dream. And so he starts killing them all because they can't interpret the dream. And Daniel steps forward and says, I can interpret uh, the dream uh, if you give me some time to, to, to get the interpretation from God. And so he gives him time and Daniel prays and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his buddies, they pray. And, uh, and so Daniel gives him the interpretation. And the interpretation from Daniel was, listen, King, this dream that you, that you had was concerning world-ruling empires, uh, and and it, it, the golden head is the world-ruling empire of Babylon of which you are the king. And, and you're the head of this image, this head of gold. Uh, but after you, and the, the King Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to hear that there was an after him, but Daniel said, listen, after you, there will come another world-ruling empire, and this second world-ruling empire will have chest and arms of silver. Now, at the time of giving this interpretation, uh, Daniel did not know who this second world-ruling empire was. We know from the benefit of history, looking in the rearview mirror of history, that he was referring to the Medo-Persian empire, which was the second world-ruling empire that would come after uh, Babylon. Um, and, uh, and then Daniel continued, and he said, the belly and the thighs of bronze refers to yet another world-ruling empire. Again, in the rearview mirror of history, we know that this is referring to the Grecian empire. Uh, Daniel continuing says the, the, there was um, a leg, the legs were of, of iron. Uh, again, another world-ruling empire, and we know from history that this was speaking of the Roman Empire, and iron being such a, a great symbol of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire basically operated with a real simple understanding. It was called the Pax Romana, and the Pax Romana, if I could sum it up, it was basically, you mess with us and you're dead. That was the Pax Romana, and, and so you can respect that. They're basically, hey, look, you don't mess with us? we're cool. You mess with us, we will crush you. And so they were the legs uh, of iron. Uh, And then continuing, Daniel, curiously, he said there would be a fifth world ruling empire that the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, we don't have the benefit of history for this fifth ruling empire, world ruling empire, because there has not been a world ruling empire since the fall of the Roman Empire. 
And so this is some uh, empire that is yet in the future. And this world-ruling empire, uh, Daniel's vision was that it was partly of iron and partly of clay. And so you think about the, the, the feet, and, and the interesting thing about the feet is that there's, there's, there's ten toes. And, and the, the makeup suggests that there are ten, a ten-nation confederacy that comes together, that bands together, that rules together, uh, and it's partly of iron and partly of clay, symbolizing that some of these nations are very strong, uh, many suggest remnants of the original Roman Empire, uh, and some of these nations are weak, hence the, the clay, and so mixed together. And Daniel saw a stone cut without human hands, uh, and, and he said, listen, this is this is, this is God. This is referring to God. And he is going to crush that fifth ruling empire. And, and he's going to establish his own rule, his own reign. And this prophecy given thousands of years ago. And much of it already fulfilled. And the part not yet fulfilled, which we will get into in the later chapters, is the, 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 the looking to what will be the rule of the Antichrist. And so when he talks about, hey, there, there is a, this fifth ruling empire with the legs partly of iron and, and partly of clay, or the, rather the feet partly of iron and partly of clay, he's referring to that rule of Antichrist which is yet to come. And Jesus will crush that rule, and that is, that is certainly yet to come. Now, God gave the king this dream for many reasons. One of the reasons that God gave the king uh, this dream was to show him, hey, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, this is all bigger than you. See, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man, and he thought it was all about him. He wanted it to be all about him. How much are we so often like Nebuchadnezzar, where we want it to be all about us? And, and so what God is doing is he's, he's trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to tell him, hey, listen, this, this thing's a lot bigger than you. And what we discovered as we were studying through uh, his vision, his dream that he had and Daniel's interpretation of it was that as, you know, he went to bed and, and this is, you know, Daniel prayed that God would give him the interpretation of the dream. He gave him the dream, first of all, and the interpretation, secondly. God went over there. He gave him the trifecta. He gave him the dream. He gave him the interpretation of the dream. And he gave him the thoughts that the king had in his mind and in his heart as he was going to bed. And, and the, as, as he went to bed, Daniel was told by God and shared with the king, look, here's what you were thinking about. You were all gripped about the future. And so often, and I'm not going to get into it, we went through it in the message, and I urge you if you didn't get in the message to listen to it online, but so often what happens is that we get wrapped up in our world, in our kingdom, in our empire, and, and we want to sweep under the rug, not look at, not address the issue that your life and your empire has an expiration date. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And there is a day coming when every single one of us will stand before the one whose eyes are a burning fire. And there's not getting anything past him. And there is that expiration date. And so often we want to live our lives where we sweep that under the rug and where we don't focus on that. 
But listen, this is what the king was dealing with. And so when he had this dream, it shook him. It unsettled him, even though he maybe couldn't fully remember the dream and certainly didn't know what it meant. He knew it was important. That's why he freaked out and started killing everybody that couldn't tell him what it was. Daniel could tell him what it was. And this is what he told him. Listen, this is all so much bigger than you. Now, this was King Nebuchadnezzar's opportunity. This was his opportunity to say, okay, God, I hear you. It's bigger than me. And that my kingdom has an expiration date. My empire has an expiration date. I need to tune in here. You're trying to teach me something. You're trying to, you're trying to take my eyes off of this and put my eyes on you. And instead of doing that, essentially what King Nebuchadnezzar does if I can be so graphic, is that he, he gives God the middle finger is what he does because he goes and he builds this image. And the image that he builds, he builds out of solid gold. And we don't know exactly what he built, but probably what he built was a, a statue of himself. See, in, in the image that God showed him, what is reality, God said, you're the head of gold, but there's kingdoms coming after you. There's an expiration to, to, to your rule and reign. There's a day coming when you're going to have to give an account of your life and stand before me, and, and this thing's all going to roll up like a curtain, man, and it's over. And instead of, of, of submitting and humbling himself to that, he said, no, 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 I will, I'm going to replace your, I'm going to reject your reality, I'm going to replace it with my own, I'm going to build, an, I'm going to be, build the image that it should be, and I'm going to build an image entirely of gold, what do you think about that? And I'm going to have everybody bow down to it and worship it, and this is what we went through in Daniel chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, when we were last here where Daniel erects this image on the plains of Dura. And, and, and interestingly, he, he erects it at 60 cubits high. Its width is six cubits. We get into the, the, the sixes there. And, and if you're a prophecy buff, you know, you know that Antichrist, the number of a man, it's 666. And, and so what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar is a type. He's a, he's, a, he's a picture for us of what Antichrist will be, what he will look like, that he sets up his rule and reign, that he takes... He has this remnant of Israel that's captive that he wants to bow down and have worship him, but they remain faithful and strong, this remnant remaining faithful and true to the Lord. And this is what this is a picture of. And we'll get into that more in the weeks to come. But what's happening here is that the king, he basically has, has rejected God's dominion and he has insisted upon his own. And, and that's the big idea of this entire chapter. It's so key before we move on that you get that. That, that we understand that, that, that everyone must settle the issue of dominion in their lives. Who will have ultimately dominion over your life? Who has dominion over your life? That's a good question to answer. Who will you worship? Who will you serve? Towards the end of his life... Joshua gathered the nation of Israel together and he said this to him, put on the screen for you. He said, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there it is right there. What you see there in these few verses is that we are created worshipers and, and the question isn't, isn't will we worship? That's not the question. You will worship some, something. You will worship someone. 
So the question isn't, will you worship? The question is, what will you worship? The question is, who will you worship? See, we looked at this last time as we were going through, and we're talking about this sin of idolatry. It's so key in this issue of dominion, because there's a, there's a full court press for who will have dominion in your life. And, and so what happens is that whatever we worship, that's what we will serve. We will sacrifice for it. We will give our time to it. We'll give our hearts to it. We will give our wallets to it. And here's what you need to know. When it's God that you worship, then what happens, the result is that, man, you have peace in your heart. The result is that, that, that you're right with him because the Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. The Bible says that God will, his, the, the peace of God will surpass your understanding. And so when we worship God with our hearts, with our minds, with our wallet, with our time, with our lives, when we worship him in this way, the, the issue is, is that the result will be peace because we've drawn near to him. The Bible says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And in his presence is fullness of joy. But see, what happens is when we don't draw near to God and rather we draw near to something else, some other thing that we place as an idol, then the result is a bottomless pit of discontentment because that idol can never satisfy. And and we looked at this last way, the, the way that idolatry works in the sense that when we worship false gods, we create our own hell. And here's the deal. You know, the the best definition of hell is that Well, it's separation from God. That's the best definition of hell. It's it's, I'm somewhere where God ain't, okay? And so what happens is, is that when we worship some sort of false God, what we do, in a sense, is we create our own hell. So you have, you know, an alone hell, or you have a broke hell, or you have a I can't stand my life and I want to escape it hell. And so what happens is, is you, you follow all sorts of false saviors to keep you from going to your false hell. So if it's, hey, I, I can't stand my life and I want to escape it hell, then you're going to run to alcohol, and you're going to run to drugs, and you're going to run to maybe promiscuous sex or whatever it is. And, and so, you know, it's just, hey, this is the way it goes. Or if it's a broke hell. Hey, I, I can't stand being, being broke. And so what happens is you have your own savior, your functional God that you're going to run to. And so it becomes your, your wallet and it becomes your job and it becomes that overtime shift and it becomes maybe stealing whatever it is so that you've got and so that you're not broke. And again, the, the whole issue there, if you even trace that back even further for most, it has something to do with control. That if you're broke, you're out of control. And for many people, being in control is the God that they worship. Has many different forms. Well, here's what I want you to hear. That it is so prevalent today. This idol worship is so prevalent that when Christians will stand up and live their lives worshiping the true and living God, we will stand out, won't we? We do. When Christians stand up, they and worship God, the whole world looks on and says, what's wrong with you? That's, you're weird, you know, as they're doing stupid, crazy stuff, you know, Portland riding their bikes naked down the street or whatever it is, you know. They think that's normal and they call Christians weird, you know. And um, there was a story Pastor Josh told me, I just won't say it because it's, I don't have time, not that I couldn't, but it's funny and you can ask me afterwards. Anyway, we ain't got time. I'm trying to save it. So, um, at any rate, 
Uh, <laughs> what's I talking about? All right, so the world looks on at us as we worship the Lord. It says, man, you're weird. I, you know, just this week, and maybe you saw it. I was on, on Facebook. Kirk Cameron sent out this thing. He's got a new movie coming out. It's called um, uh, Unstoppable. And, uh, and it's a faith about, it's a, it's a film about faith and hope and love and about why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And so he was trying to promote the film, the, the film on Facebook and he put it on Facebook, but every time he tried to put in the website, Facebook wouldn't let him post it. And he came to find out that they had labeled the content abusive and unsafe and they blocked the website. And he could, he flat out, he couldn't promote it on Facebook, you know, a film about faith and hope and love, right? Now, I don't know if you've been on Facebook, but they promote a lot of things that, that uh, I would say is uh, abusive and unsafe, right? And certainly not faith and hope and love and why God allows bad things to happen, good people, and a real redeeming film. And it was only after 500,000 of Kurt Cameron's followers all got on Facebook, half a million people saying, what's up, Facebook? That Facebook reversed it, and now he's able to promote it on Facebook. And this is just one of a bazillion examples of how the world looks at Christianity and says, nah, you're abusive, nah, you're a hater, whatever it is, you're intolerant. And, 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 you know, Jesus said it would be that way. He said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus said it would be that way, and that's exactly what happens next to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 8, therefore at that time, the time when the king had erected this image, wants everybody to bow down and worship it, he's in direct defiance to God and, and all, that that time certain Chaldeans came forward and they accused the Jews. They spoke and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. That's, you know, sucking up there. Verse 10, you, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all the kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon Shadrach Meshach and Abednego and these men O king have not paid due regard to you They do not serve your gods uh, or worship the gold image which you have set up. These guys throwing them hard under the bus. Now, if you're a note taker, I'd have you write down this. When you stand for God, you will stand out. This is my first point. When you stand for God, you will stand out. You should stand out when you take a stand for God. I'll never forget, I was in the fifth grade and I was in summer school and it was an interesting time. The Watergate trial was going on. It was all over the TV with all these guys being interviewed and, and that's like watching paint dry for a 10-year-old kid, you know. But, so I'm in, but I'm in summer school because, I, well, I hadn't paid that close attention during regular school and so I had to go to summer school in order to pass my class. And so this particular day, they were, I was getting tested. It was like for all the marbles, man. And, and I was stressed out of my mind. 
And so I had these three punk kids in this class that were just giving me grief just the whole way through. And, uh, and it's like, you know, at any point, man, we're going to Duke City, man, with these kids. And it was hard. And I have to deal with these jokers, and I'm just like, you know, trying to, to not deal with them. And, and so anyway, I got this test coming, and I have to pray. Now, at the time, I, I'm a 10-year-old boy. I had been raised in the Catholic Church. And so I had been taught that when you pray, that you have to, at the end of your prayer, you have to, to, to put a stamp on your prayer by, you know, praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have to cross yourself. You know, that's the stamp on your prayer. By the way, just so you know, if you ask anything in accordance with God's will, in the name of Jesus Christ, he hears it. You don't have to make the sign of the cross. You don't have to put a stamp on your prayer. The stamp on your prayer is, you know, Lord, I'm talking to you and and I'm sincere, you know. Uh, Peter, walking on the water, you know, he started to sink. his, His prayer was, Lord, help, you know. And sometimes that's our prayers. God hears those prayers. So I want to be really clear. I'm telling you, you know, a, a descriptive story, not a prescriptive story, all right? So, so I'm 10 years old, been raised in the Catholic Church. I'm praying like I got to pass this test. And so I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the end of my prayer. And I'm like, Man, I got to put the stamp on the prayer. And I'm like, these guys are going to see it. And I'm stressing out. So, so I try real discreetly. I'm like, you know, in the name of the Father. And I'm I'm just trying to be real discreet about it. They caught it. And so I look over at them. They're like, you know, just like mocking me. I'm like dying. But you know what? In that place, I'm like, you know what? I don't even care. I need, I need the Lord right now here to pass this test. It's been said, as long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in school. <laughs> <And, coughs> so I, I'm praying, man. God, hear my prayer. Now, The moment you take a stand for the Lord, you're going to stand out. Fast forward, my now 10-year-old son. That's my 10-year-old story. Here's my 10-year-old son's story. He, he's at, at, at the age of 10, he's, he's on, um, He's on a Stephen Bochco show. My son, Scotty, uh, was an actor all his life growing up, and so he, he was on a, a, show that, a TV show that Stephen Bochco was producing at the time. And Stephen Bochco, uh, if, if you're familiar with him, he kind of was, you know, real sensational in the news. Years back, he produced a bunch of stuff, you know, Hill Street Blues and all. And, uh, and so um, he was going edgy, edgy, edgy. He wanted, you know, nudity on television and the whole bit. And um, not my son's show, but at any rate. So my son was, was on his show and, and had a regular cast member on his show. And he's, he's being interviewed by the TV guide. And so the TV guide asks my, my boy, they say, um, hey, so you, pray, you play a brat uh, on, on TV or you like that in real life? And my son says, no, it's called acting. You know, I'm acting. But then he goes on to say, he talks about how, um, you know what, I love acting. I love going to the set because um, I get to tell everybody about Jesus at the set. Ten-year-old son, right? And... Um, they, they, have the, they have this picture in the TV guide. They have the title above it, Missionary Man. I'm like, yes! <laughs> Till Stephen Boschko found out. He was not happy. And the, and, the, and the environment around the set, in terms of how he was treated, how we were treated, changed after that. Because the minute you decide that you're going to take a stand for Jesus Christ, that is when, man, you're going to stand out you're going to stand out. But here's the thing. You want to stand out. 
Here's why. Do you remember when we were in Daniel chapter 2, that, that, and it wasn't in my notes at the time, and it was just something the Holy Spirit just had me mention really quickly. And that was this issue of character brings access. Remember that? Character brings access. Here's what was going on in Daniel chapter 2. The king couldn't find anybody to interpret his dream, calls all his magicians, all his astrologers, wants an interpretation. Nobody can give it. And so he's like, you're all dead. And he starts having them all killed. So the guy shows up at Daniel's house. He's like, sorry, bro, I got to kill you. And Daniel's like, whoa, what's going on, man? And so he tells him, hey, look, the king's freaking out. I mean, he's, he's had this dream. He's got them all wigged out. And he just, nobody can tell him the interpretation of the dream. And so you know, I'm going to have to kill you, man. And so King, it, Daniel says, no, let me go talk to him. And amazingly enough, he says, okay. And Daniel gets to go right into the presence of the king, who's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And Daniel gets to go walk right in and say, hey, listen, king, let's, let's talk about this. Now, what gave him such access was that he was a man of character. Right? He was a man who had taken a stand for God. And, and in taking a stand for God, his character was shown forth to everyone. And so character brings access. And this is why it's so very important for us to stand for God. See, listen, had Daniel not stood out as a man of character, he never would have had the opportunity to be used by God, probably would have been killed along with all of the other wise men. and this prophecy would not have been fulfilled the way it was. Let me ask you a question. How is God calling you to stand? How is God calling you to take a stand for Jesus? How is God calling you to take a stand for Jesus, maybe at work, in in, in your home? How is God calling you to take a stand for Jesus at school? How is he calling you to take a stand for Jesus in your neighborhood? How's God calling you to take a stand for Jesus here in your church? See, because we need to stand for Jesus. The world's depending on those that will take a stand for Jesus. Ironically, these people who want to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego killed, going to the king and ratting him out, they owe their very lives to them for having taken a stand for Jesus. And that leads us right into the next point. When you stand for God, you will face fiery trials, as we're going to see. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read verses 13 through 25, because I've got a lot of points that I want to make in this text, and I'm going to jump around. So let's let's read 13 through 25, and then we'll we'll make all the points there. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, the report comes to him, hey, these guys aren't bound to your image. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Total glimpse into Nebuchadnezzar's heart. You know, he, he's seen the image. He knows that there's an, an expiration date and he's defiant. 
No, who's the God that's going to deliver you from me? I'm not that. I'm this golden image. That's the way I see it. That's the way it's going to be. So many people live in their lives that way. Just in direct defiance of God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the, ex, the, the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the, here's the picture. Here's what's going on. When, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the report came about them and the king called, he's enraged and he has them brought before him. But, but you can tell there's still this sort of attitude because they've been, <clears throat> excuse me, they've been serving him and he's seeing them serve him. And so you, you kind of get the impression there's sort of a soft spot in his heart for these kids. And so when they come in, what I envision is the conversation that he had with them was kind of more like, you know, hey, look, come on, guys. And now I know you made, you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't do that, but, but come on, man. See, so we're going to, I'm going to give you another chance now. Now be reasonable. And he fully expected that these guys were, were, were going to, you know, kids do these things sometimes. They rebel. Hey, listen, look, I'm going to give you another opportunity. And they, their response is, we ain't bound to your image. It ain't happening. Won't do it. Don't need time to think about it. It's a done deal. His face changed. His expression changed. His whole outlook changed. He spoke and he commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 21, Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, uh, their turbans, uh, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now that's just common, great picture, how oftentimes in our rage and in our fury and in our defiance of God, the things that end up getting destroyed are, are the, the, the things that, you know, they're, they're just the things that we value in life and, and you know, and all. Because here were these guys, they were, they were these, these valiant men. They were mighty men. They were, they were assets of the king. And, he, and he's, you know, directly defined. God, he's going to kill God's people, and who gets hurt in the process? His people, his, his valuable assets are what get hurt in the process. And these three men, verse 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, and then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste, and he spoke, saying to his counselors, did, not, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered, and they said to the king, True, O king. Verse 25, Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not heard, and the, fourth, uh, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. My second point, maybe you've already written it down, when you stand for God, you will face fiery trials. 
When you stand for God, you will face fiery trials. Right into the churches that Paul established in modern Turkey, Peter said this. He said, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed. Hey, they're blaspheming God. They're saying all sorts of evil against God. You know what? On their part, that's blasphemy. But on your part, he's glorified. Now, remember, when you read 1 Peter, this is Peter writing to the churches in modern-day Turkey that Paul had established and, and the occasion and purpose for Peter writing this letter was because Paul had been killed for his faith. Church tradition holds that Paul was beheaded for his faith. And so here's all these churches that themselves, all the members, going through intense persecution. And now their pastor has been murdered. They're shook, man. They're, they're, they're struggling. And Peter writes to them and he says, look, this isn't strange. You're going through a fiery trial, it's not strange. It's not like some strange thing happens to you. You guys know how you feel when you go through a fiery trial in your life? Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, but many of you today are going through a fiery trial of some sort. And you know what it is when you go through a trial, there's this thing that happens to where you start doubting and you start questioning. What? Why? Where have you gone, God? What did I do to you? What did I ever... Come on. And, and, he, and, he, and he allows this, and you, you get to a place where your world gets shook, and you start to doubt everything. And Peter says, listen, this isn't strange, man. Fiery trials are a part of the Christian life. They've been a part of the Christian life from the very beginning. And interestingly, right after Peter would write this, right in the same time frame, he himself would pay the ultimate price and be crucified for his faith. He was crucified upside down, church tradition holds, because he refused to be crucified in the manner in which his Savior was crucified. See, Christians have been facing fiery trials from the very beginning. I'm sure you remember Cassie Bernal. She received Christ when she was 15 years old and every day she would go to her school library at lunchtime and she would read her Bible in the school lunch cafeteria. And on April 20th, 1999, as the massacre unfolded at Columbine High School, there she was in the library reading her Bible. And the gunman came up to her and he stuck a gun to her head and he said, are you a believer in Jesus? And she looked him dead in the eye and she said, you know that I am and you should be too. And he killed her on the spot. Joe Foch, who pastors a Calvary Chapel out of Philadelphia, he called Pastor Gino, who was the Littleton, Colorado Calvary Chapel pastor dealing with this. And he said, Gino, what aren't we getting on the news? Right in the midst of all this. He's like, what, what, what isn't the news reporting? What's going on that, that we're not being told? And Pastor Gino said, what you're not being told, Joe, is that hundreds and hundreds of high schoolers 
giving their lives to Jesus Christ. See, the only thing that can make this world right is Jesus. It's the only thing that make, make this thing right. And, and I want you to notice here, this is important, the only way King Nebuchadnezzar saw Jesus was because faithful men were willing to go through a fiery trial. Some of you are going through a fiery trial this morning. Some of you are going through divorce. Some, some of you are suffering through cancer. Some of you are suffering an, uh, an unknown illness. You're waiting for a doctor's diagnosis. Some of you are in the midst of a financial firestorm. You don't know how you're going to get by. You don't know how you're going to make the bills. Some of you are suffering through the, the firestorm effects of, of abuse or betrayal. I don't know what it is, but you do. And see, the, the, the issue is, is that when we're in the midst of a fiery trial, man, it is an opportunity for others to see Jesus there with you. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but the second point I want to have you write down is that when you stand for God, Jesus will meet you in your trials. When you stand for God, Jesus will meet you in your trials. If you look again at verse 24 and 25, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, was astonished and he rose in haste. He spoke, saying to his counselors, and we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire and they answered and said to the king, true, O king, and he says in verse 25, look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. This is what is called a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And there's, there's several uh, Christophanies throughout the Bible. I'll give you a, a couple. In Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestled with God all night, uh, that uh, is most likely a Christophany, that he was wrestling with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. In Genesis 18, when three men appeared to Abraham, and, and it was during this meeting where uh, they, they told him, hey, listen, your wife Sarah is, is going to give birth, and she's in the tent listening, and she laughs within her. And the text makes it very clear as you read it that he's talking to God. And again, most, uh, most commentators believe this is a Christophany, a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And the, and, and the issue is, is that the scriptures indicate many examples where Jesus meets people in the midst of their trials. If you think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7, here's a man, he, he was the, the first martyr of the church. He was a man, the, the guys are teaching the word, and they're saying, listen, we're wrapped up, we got work up to our ears, and, and we have so much work in feeding the, the people and, and giving food to the, to the widows and all. We, we can't study the word like we should, so we need some faithful men to help us. And Stephen was one of those guys, one of the first deacons. The word deacons means, uh, you know, one who serves. And, and it's just this picture of a beautiful, hey, I'm here, I'm going to serve. And so Stephen stands up, and, and there he's, he's faithful serving. The Bible says that you're faithful in little. God will make you faithful in much. And so in serving as he did, now he has this opportunity to preach his first sermon in Acts chapter 7, and he just preaches it. He kills it. And everybody's cut to the heart. 
And we see a couple examples in Scripture where guys preached, and it says that they were cut to the heart. One was Peter, preached a message on the day of Pentecost. Everybody was cut to the heart, and they repented. And, and another, that's one response when people are cut to the heart. There's another type of response when people are cut to the heart, and they don't repent, they retaliate, you know, and they want to kill, and some of you maybe experienced that, you know, you preach the, the gospel, and they want to kill you. Well, that's what happened to Stephen, they actually did kill him. We'll put it on the screen for you, it says, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open. This man is in a great trial. He's being stoned. Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The point is that when you stand for God, Jesus will meet you in your trials. In Stephen's instance, we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. The only only reference in Scripture where Jesus is standing at the throne of God, as if to welcome in the first martyr of the church, as if to give him a standing ovation. Jesus there with him. And, And here's the thing. You know, when you my second point was that when you stand for God, you're going to face fiery trials. And and third point is that when you stand for God, God will meet you in your trials. I want to tell you why that's so important. We saw it with Cassie Burnell and hundreds of kids getting saved because of the way that she faced her fiery trial. And here with Stephen, we see him going through a fiery trial. And the response, well, the, the, the text makes it really carefully clear to tell us that Saul was there. Paul the Apostle, he wasn't Paul the Apostle at this point. At this point, he's murdering Christians. And he was there. And he was holding everybody's coats. He was the guy presiding over the lynching. And he was at a front row seat to to see Stephen's faith, to see Stephen encounter Jesus Christ, to see Stephen talking with the Lord. And we know that it had a profound impact on Paul. And here now he becomes the Apostle Paul. He plants a gazillion churches. He writes two-thirds of the Bible that you hold in your lap. You see, there, 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 is, there is mileage that God gets out of the suffering that we go through. Let me say that a different way. In God's economy, it is all worth it. It's all worth it. And so when you stand for God, Jesus will meet you in your trials. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses was nearing his death and he was passing the baton on to Joshua. And here's what he said to him. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, because of the enemies that we face. For the Lord your God goes with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, if you're in the midst of a trial today, you need to hear that. If the Lord's right there with you, he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. The psalmist said, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Again, the psalmist said, the Lord is near to all who call upon his name, to all who call upon him in truth. Listen, if you're going through a trial today, Jesus will meet you there. All right, quickly, fourth point. Write it down. The time to decide to stand for God is before the trial comes. The time to decide 
to stand for God is before the trial comes. Look again at verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love the way the King James Version puts what they just said. It says that they said, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. Now, you know, the, the idea here is, uh, you know, I don't have to watch my words. You ever watch a politician? They're really careful in the way that they answer you, right? I remember one uh, case, it was a, I think it was a supervisor's debate, and, uh, and you had the incumbent and you had the challenger. And, and the incumbent, well, uh, he's, you know, he's got his platform. Well, the challenger's platform was basically to, at- to attack the incumbent's platform and say, look, that guy's done a lousy job, and, and one of the big problems of, of his administration, look at the condition of our roads. Our roads are horrible, they're deplorable, they're falling apart, and it's all his fault. And so the moderator steps in, and he says, now, you know, supervisor, he's talking to the incumbent, you know, the challenge has been made, that, uh, you know, your administration has been uh, neglectful in the, in the condition of the roads. Would you care to respond to that? Classic politician, the, the incumbent supervisor says, I'd love to respond to that question. But before I answer that question, can I just say what a tremendous job our transportation department is doing. And he went on for five minutes talking about the tremendous job that the transportation department was doing. All those boys down at the transportation department, they're great. And this and that never did answer the question. And that's what's going on here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, well, I don't have to be careful how I answer you. That one's real easy. And the other way it's translated is, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Same difference. Look, my mind's made up. There, there, I, don't, I don't have to, you know, you're saying, oh, come on, guys. Now, come on, boys. Go. We're going to give you a second chance. They're like, we ain't, we ain't needing a second chance, bro. It's done. It's settled. They said, verse 17, if that's the case, if, if we're going to get tossed into, into this fiery furnace for not worshiping you, well, you know what? Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Here's the deal. They'd made up their mind. They, they, this wasn't the occasion for them to go, huh, what are we going to do? See, we read about Daniel early on in the first chapter that that he purposed in his heart that he might not sin against the Lord. It's the idea of rehearsing and repeating ahead of time how you're going to react in a situation. I did that as a firefighter, driving around, see a building, it's not on fire, it's the middle of the day, and we would rehearse and go over how are we going to attack this thing if it catches on fire and we roll out of here with drool still on our cheeks and and all, and and it's all up in flames. How are we going to attack this fire then? Where, where's the utilities? How can we catch them? How can we turn, you know, the gas off to the building? How can we turn the electricity off the building so we don't get fried inside? You know, are we going to attack it from the front or the back? What's the inside of the building look like? It all was ahead of time thought through so that on the day of the attack, we're ready. The time to decide to stand for God is before the trial comes. And this is what these guys do. Hey, we don't need to sugarcoat it. We don't even need to dignify your thing with an answer. And I want you to notice what they say. They say, God is able to deliver us. And even if not, we will not worship you and we're not worshiping your gods. Now, I want to know, did you catch that? When they say, hey, we're not worshiping you, we're not worshiping me and your gods. The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
This is what's in their hearts. They had long since determined, man, this decision isn't made right here in the moment. I made up my mind before I got here. Turn to uh, 1 Samuel 14, real quickly. And I mean quick. We're going to be quick with this. 1 Samuel 14, I'm just going to start reading. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young men who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Why didn't he tell his father? It's Jonathan. His father is King Saul, who's the ruler of Israel, who's in charge of all the forces. Why didn't he tell him? Verse 2. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeon under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men. So here's the picture. There is a battle. The Philistines are at war. We got to do something about them. And you've got Jonathan and his armor bearer essentially on the front line. And you've got Saul and the rest of the army all as far away from the battle line as they can get there on the outskirts. And he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. Isn't that pleasant? You can just see him there. He's got, you know, maybe he's squished it all up. He's got a straw in there, you know, whatever. You know, he's enjoying, he's kicking back. He's not in the battle. Yeah, and so the, the, the issue is, uh, the text goes on, says, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, uh, Ichabod's brother. Now, what, who do we care whose brother it is? Well, Ichabod means the glory of the Lord has departed. And, and I think it's put, he's, he's mentioned in this way just as God's way of, of saying, look, read this through the picture of, I ain't with Saul no more. The glory of the Lord has departed. And, and so it says that um, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Did you catch that? This is the man who's supposed to be in tune with the Lord, part of Saul's entourage. He's wearing an ephod, which identifies him as a priest, as someone who's set apart from the Lord, and they don't have a clue. They are completely out of tune with what God is doing because God has, has moved upon Jonathan's heart to go and the priest doesn't have a clue. Why? Because the glory of the Lord had departed. And this all goes back to this issue. Hear this. This all goes back to the issue of if you've settled your heart and where you're at with God, if you've predetermined to follow the Lord. See, what happens if you go back, and in time's sake you won't, but in, in 1 Samuel 13, what you see there is that Samuel, in his impatience, when he's facing the enemy, he didn't want to wait on the Lord. And so what he did is because he thought Samuel was taking too long, uh, Saul, because he thinks Samuel's taking too long, he makes all the sacrifices, which is in conflict to the law. It's, 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 it's the, the modern equivalent of you act religious by doing this religious thing, but it's really all about you. And it's really all about you doing things in your own strength. And this is where Saul's at. He did this, and Samuel showed up and he told Saul the bad news. The Lord's departed from you, man. His hand's off you. So what's happened here, because here's the big idea we're talking about. Man, you need to decide to stand before with God before the trial comes. Well, before this trial came that Jonathan is now facing, 
Saul had decided not to stand with God. So the Lord wasn't there for Saul, with Saul. His hand was off of Saul. And so Jonathan now, he's, he's in this place. Now, I'll paraphrase. Basically, the story goes on. Jonathan goes up. He tells his arm bearer, we're going to go do this thing. And, uh, you know, we're going to go up and, and all. It talks about the, the land that they go through. It basically draws a picture that they go through a very narrow pass, a place that's perfect for ambush, which will factor in later. later. And um, then Jonathan, verse 6, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing, this is the point, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, Jonathan knew that the battle belongs to the Lord. He was ready. And the key to Jonathan's decision was, hey, listen, my mind's made up already. I worship the Lord. The point of application for you is very simple. If you don't make the decision today that you're going to stand for the Lord, then what makes you think you're going to be able to stand for the Lord in the day of adversity? Because if you can't stand for him today and make up your mind to stand for him today, and that's going to be 10 times, 20 times, 100 times harder for you to stand for the Lord in the midst of trial. My fifth and final point, and I'll make it in one minute, is this, that fiery trials have the capacity to set us free. Fiery trials have the capacity to set us free. If you look in verse 26, it's back in uh, Daniel, very clear. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and he spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. Now remember, when they got thrown in the fire, they were bound up, man. Their hands, their feet, they were all bound. And the next verse goes on to say that, you know what, their garments weren't singed, wasn't even a smell of smoke on them. But guess what was burned up? The things that bound them. And the point of application is this, is that if you will stand for God and if you will just trust the Lord through those times of fiery trial, listen, he allows oftentimes fiery trials in our lives to set us free. And I have two points of application in closing. First of all, some of you are in the midst of a fiery trial today. It's hard. And what you need to know is that it's normal and you need to know that it's needful. Fiery trials are normal and they're needful. Number one, it's an opportunity for you to show Jesus as we've already examined. And the the unbelieving world is looking on. They do want to see how you handle the trials that you're going through. But the second thing in that I want you to know is that For some of you, you're in the fiery trial because God wants to burn away the ties that are binding you. Some of you are in a fiery trial right now because you're bound up in sin. And God's allowed that fiery trial because he wants to to set you free of those those things that bind you, those have you enslaved. Let him. Some of you, you're not in a fiery trial today. Today. And you need to make a determination today to stand for God. 
because your day's coming. It's like the motorcycle rider, man. There's two types, those that have been down, those that are going down. And it's only a matter of time before you get your time in the barrel in your fiery trial. And so make the determination today. I'm going to stand for God. Amen?